A victim of fascism once wrote persuasively, the only writer of history with the gift of setting alight the sparks of hope in the past is the one who is convinced of this, that not even the dead will be safe from the enemy if he is victorious. I want you both to go to occupied France. France? How? By sea or air, only you won't be going in uniform. What do we do when we get there? Organize resistance, act as liaison officers with London. Hi, I'm Matthew McGregor. I'm the campaigns director at Hope Not Hate. We've been working to celebrate the lives of the heroes of the resistance. In some countries, like the UK, the fight against fascism has become a central part of our national identity. That national story is one of the reasons why fascism has not managed to put down roots in the post-war period. Whether it's Oswald Mosley, the National Front or the BNP, they were beaten back by appeals to that national story of our fight against fascism in the Second World War. even newspapers like the Daily Mail that before the war declared you know, hurrah for the black shirts, today they celebrate the resistance to the, the fighters of that same fascism as heroes, and, and rightly so. It's changed the national context in which we live, it's changed our national story, but elsewhere in other countries where fascism ruled or where Nazism uh, occupied that country and was not fully exercised in the immediate post-war period, the relationship to the past is much more contested. You, know, you look at France and Italy where avowedly uh, fascist parties continue to draw large support bases and are even arguing over the significance of their fascist lineage. Then there's even more complexity in the memory of the war in countries like Ukraine and Poland that were brutalized by Nazism and then by Stalinist authoritarianism. Poland, for example, had a large Jewish population pre-war. The Nazis behaved with unbelievable brutality towards all Poles, but only the Jews were singled out for complete annihilation. Despite the Nazi cruelty, the long, brutal memory of Stalinist communism has in some ways lessened the memory of the Nazi occupation's cruelty. And for that reason, there are significant extreme right or anti-Semitic movements that have been able to grow up. All this serves to show that this history needs to be written in order to be remembered properly. A big part of the memory of the resistance is due to the heroic efforts of the Nazis' enemies in documenting the crimes of the regime. Without these documents or the oral testimonies of the survivors, we would have very little with which to record the past and to protect the dead from the deniers. Anthony Silkoff of the Board of Deputies of British Jews wrote a beautiful piece of the efforts of ghettoized Jews in documenting the everyday persecution of the Nazis. Here he is reading his piece. It's often said that history is written by the victors, and that was certainly true um, of the plan of the Nazis. They attempted to exterminate the memory of the Jewish people, burning their books and their heritage as they cremated their bodies. 
When a group of Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto embarked on a clandestine mission to document their lives for future generations, it was really the ultimate act of defiance. Led by a historian um, called Emmanuel Ringelblum, they created arguably the most important time capsule ever. As a descendant of Polish Jews myself, some of whom were murdered by the Nazis, reading about Ringelblum's bravery leaves me really profoundly humbled. Ringelblum and his colleagues set out documenting every aspect of life and death in the ghetto. They handed out notebooks to the ghetto population and they encouraged um, them to record their everyday life. So along with written documents, the archive also managed to preserve artefacts, things like newspapers, ration tickets, letters, postcards, invitations to events that were held in the ghetto, things like theatre posters, school assignments, tram tickets, and even sweet wrappers. So you really get a picture of, of life as it really was in the ghetto. Obviously, the archive had to be kept in complete secrecy, and so it had a code name, Oneg Shabbat, which means Joy of the Sabbath. And as the process of the Holocaust intensified, and more and more Jews were being sent to their deaths. So did the mission to preserve the history. And so the Ringelblum and his colleagues started burying the archive underground in metal boxes and milk churns. Within months of the archive being buried, most of the ghetto's 400,000 inhabitants were murdered at the death camp Treblinka. Since it was recovered after the war, the archive has really shed a lot of light on the horrors of the Holocaust. We know, for example, from the archived ration cards that inhabitants were limited to 189 calories a day. A quarter of the ghetto population starved to death. And we know about the corpse of a young boy which was left to rot in the street for days. But some of the material is inspiring rather than horrifying. So, for example, the moving collection of paintings created in the midst of so much suffering by artists such as Gela Sechstein. In 1942, 19-year-old David Graeber added his own note to the archive, writing, I would love to see the moment in which the great treasure will be dug up and scream the truth at the world. May history be our witness. And so the heroes of Oneg Shabbat made sure their stories lived on. And I think today when anti-Semitism and other forms of racism like Islamophobia, anti-Gypsy, Roman traveler prejudice still fester and still are growing, it's really up to each of us to scream the truth and act as a witness to the Holocaust. Efforts such as these and others in documenting the atrocities of the Nazis count as a crucial long-term part of the resistance. They changed everything. They allowed us to record and lay testimony to the violence of the Nazis and to hold that memory forever. The story that most spoke to me from the collection was that of the Ulmers. While some Poles profiteered from the expropriation of Jewish property, Others resisted the anti-Semitism of their occupiers and of their neighbours to rescue Jews. The Ulmer family were one such righteous Polish family. When a Jewish family by the name of Zoll came to the Ulmer's door, the Ulmer family sheltered them. To be caught housing Jews by the Nazis was to face execution. 
For two years, the Ulmers housed the Zolls, at enormous risk to themselves and at enormous strain to their meagre resources. The Ulmers were not bowed by the Nazis. One day, there was a forceful knock on the door. The Nazis had been tipped off. The likely collaborator was a man who had taken control of some of the Ulmers' property and wanted the family gone for his own selfish reasons. The Nazis searched the house and found the Zolls. There was nothing to be done. Executing the Zolls one by one, the Nazis then turned their weapons on the Ulmer family. The family died because of their heroism. All of the children and Victoria, who was by then nine months pregnant, were murdered, simply for protecting a family of strangers. This story is so incredibly powerful because this family risked and ultimately lost everything for a family of people they didn't know. The easiest thing in the world would have been to hunker down, try and hide it out, uh, to, to put your own family first, your, your own flesh, to make sure that you were doing everything you could to protect them. But the Ulmer family, maybe because of their faith, maybe for some other reason, took the incredible risk and paid the ultimate sacrifice for people they didn't even know. And that is unimaginably brave and so inspirationally powerful. I want to sum up by turning to some of the words of our guests who have talked about uh, different elements of this resistance story and why those elements are so important to them. Here's Gemma Levine, Deputy Director of the Hope Not Hate Charitable Trust, on what this project says to her about the future. Whether it's here in the UK, you know, post-pandemic, we're gonna, there's going to be tough times ahead. Um, and then you think about, you know, other persecuted groups, the Uyghurs, the Rohingyas, and, you know, we can't stop. We have to continue in that tradition. There is so much to do to fight for justice for everybody. Um, so I guess reading about all of these heroes, you kind of think, you know, especially the ones who the unlikely heroes, you realize anybody can do it. Anybody can stand up and make a difference. One of the most powerful moments for me in this whole project was listening to Jack Fairweather talk poignantly about the importance of trust to the subject of his book, Viltold Pileski. Pileski had volunteered to infiltrate Auschwitz, a task that led him to witness unimaginable horror. Well, I think when you think about Pileski, his heroism and courage is just off the charts. But what I found really touched me about him was not his seemingly sort of superhuman qualities, but the fact that, but for World War II, Pilecki would probably have been just an ordinary farmer in Eastern Poland. His experience of the war changed something inside him. He went from an ordinary life to an extraordinary one. I really wanted to get at the heart of how that was possible, because I felt there was something really there for all of us to learn from. How do you transform? How is it that under the Nazis, when they're trying to reduce people, atomize people, Pletsky found the ability to expand his moral horizons. And one word kept coming up again and again with survivors who I spoke to had, who had known him with his children who lived as Noah Paletsky as, as teenagers. And they had the same word, and that was trust. He had an amazing ability to trust others. And you know that became, in some ways, the secret of the underground in Auschwitz. 
It numbered almost a thousand men when Paletsky escaped the camp. Never once was there a betrayal among those men, despite many being um, tortured by the Nazis in the camp, trying to discover the underground. And that's really testimony to that, that togetherness that Paletsky was able to achieve. And, you know, for me, trust is, seems like such an important idea today when you know i think a lot of our communities feel divided there's a lot of rancor and on social media you know are we doing enough to reach out and trust those around us um Paletsky did that time and time again in the camp he reached out to people who had different political views to himself he reached out to the russian prisoners when they arrived in auschwitz the russians who had started world war to in their pact with Nazi Germany. He reached out to them because he saw in their suffering something that had to be observed, had to be reported on, had to be stopped. I think that's a message for all of us. Can we reach out to those around us? Can we trust people more? I think if we can achieve that on a small scale, you know, we can achieve great things collectively. At Hope Not Hate, we recognise there are going to be enormous challenges to come. We want to thank all of you for your ongoing support for us. I especially want to say thank you to Hope Not Hate members who enable us to do what we do. Please like this podcast wherever you got it. Subscribe if you don't already. And please leave us a review. It helps other people to find the podcast.